Good morning. We are in our series on the spiritual gifts. Let's take a look at 1 Corinthians and chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 9. The Bible says, To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, the gifts of healing by the same Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, diverse kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. Now let's go to verse 28. And God hath set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, after that miracles, then the gifts of healings, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. All right, we are on number five. If you have our spiritual gifts outline, if you do not, I'm going to have uh, art. Can you walk around and hand those to whoever would like one? Our spiritual gifts, looking at gifts of protection. I had skipped Roman numeral number three, gifts of promotion. We will get back to that one, but I wanted to kind of cover the other four and then deal with the gifts of promotion really probably over a couple of Sundays. I don't see myself finishing that in one Sunday. So today we're on gifts of protection. We have faith, discernment, and governments, and another text called the gift of ruling. Now, I believe that, as I've stated already, these gifts that you see listed at the top in the various passages, 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10, 1 Corinthians 12, 28, Romans 12, 6 through 8, and Ephesians 4, 11, God does not clarify the, the uh, you might say, groupings that I've given you here. God did not state that the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers are under gifts of position, and then today, faith, discernment, and government is under gifts of protection. But I do see some clarification in Scripture and other texts of what these positions do, what is expected of these positions, who can fill these positions. For example, the gifts of position, uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, there are prerequisites for apostles. There are prerequisites for, for pastor, definitely, As far as prophets go, God warns us of false prophets, which means there are some standards that have to be met or you're not a true prophet. And so we have have taken these uh, gifts and separated them, and I feel very strongly that these last three gifts are exactly what I'm putting here, gifts of protection. A lot of churches do not encourage the membership to practice their gifts. A lot of churches, I don't even know if the members know what gifts are or what gifts they have. I think a lot of pastors are threatened by the gifts of members. I think a lot of members are threatened by the gifts of fellow members. And unfortunately, when you are threatened by what God has gifted the church, of course, you're not going to use it. If you, if you do use it, you'll probably misuse it or abuse it. And I do not believe that God has set up the local church where the only one who is, is receiving communication from God is the pastor. I don't believe that. I don't believe that God only speaks to the pastor and everyone else is to listen as the pastor speaks so they can know the heart of God. That's Old Testament. That was the uh, Levites, the tribe of Levi, who essentially did just that. God spoke to the priests. The priests spoke to the people. God also spoke to the prophets, and the prophets spoke to the people, and that might be maybe how some New Testament pastors are, are getting that mindset. Well, I'm not a priest, but I'm a prophet. I'm a pastor, and just like Old Testament, God spoke to the people through us. Now God speaks to them through me today, except 
In the Old Testament, not everyone was a priest. In the Old Testament, uh, they did not have the completed word of God. In the Old Testament, not every individual who was a believer was filled with the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, there was no promise that the Holy Spirit would comfort and teach and encourage and correct and convict every believer. That's a promise for the New Testament. So you cannot look at the Old Testament as a standard for how the New Testament church ought to function. Now, I don't believe that the New Testament church should just be one group of 50, 80, 200 people, 500 people all deciding together on how things ought to look. I think there's chaos when you have a large number of people trying to make a decision, especially everyday decisions. But I do believe that there is, according to Proverbs, wisdom in counsel. Even in theocracy, even in the Old Testament, when God set up the government, God set up leaders, and then he set up under leaders other people who kind of uh, kept the leader accountable. In the Old Testament, it was the, the uh, judges, and then the judges had prophets, and the prophets would often address the judges. Sometimes the judges were, and prophets were one and the same. Sometimes they were not. When they went to a monarchy with kings, God still had that accountability of the, of the prophets who would come to the uh, kings, like King David, and say, you've done wrong. So I don't see anywhere in Scripture where God is ever setting up or okay with one man calls all the shots and there's no accountability. One man calls all the shots and there's no counsel. God say, states the opposite in the Old Testament, and it seems very obvious to me in the New Testament, God presents the opposite. You find in the New Testament with churches that very often there is refer, a reference to a plurality of elders. Now, I believe personally, we talked about this, that elders are an, is another name for pastor. Elders is not a separate subcategory of pastors, somewhere between deacons and pastors, above deacons and below pastors. No, elders are pastors. And to be an elder, you need to follow the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3. So that term elders plural only implies that churches had more than one pastor, which should not shock us. When you find that the church of Jerusalem was having thousands of members come to uh, salvation on any particular day, there's definitely going to be a need for more than one pastor. <laughs> so it's not, it's not unbiblical to have more than one pastor. It's not unbiblical to have a, a group of pastors. And when you find the group of pastors, though, even in the group of pastors, you will find in the book of Acts when there was a discrepancy with the Gentile believers. And the Gentile believers uh, were told you have to basically follow the law. And the Apostle Paul was not happy about that. So he goes to the Church of Jerusalem. He advocates for the Gentiles and essentially says, guys, uh, this can't happen. This isn't right. They're not Jews. How can they follow what even the Jews can't follow? And there is essentially a council. And you find that the apostles were part of that council. But then you discover that one particular person stood up and essentially gives the final call of what ought to happen and what they should do going forward. Uh, by the way, you find that Peter is, I think, definitely a, an individual that, that has a lot of authority in the New Testament church, in the church of Jerusalem. You're going to find that um, the, the apostle Peter is given a whole lot of uh, authority. Now let's go to chapter 15 of Acts. I'm going to show you this section I'm talking about. All right, chapter 15, we're talking about in verse 1, certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. All right, so that's the issue. There was other things going on, but that was the main one. And then you find in verse 7, and when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto the men and brethren, 
Ye know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of God, uh, of the gospel, and believe. So again, Peter seems to kind of stand up and, and give the, his thoughts on, on what ought to happen. But um, I'd like you to jump down to verse 22. Then pleased it the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, surnamed Barsabas, sorry, Barsabas and Silas, chief men among the brethren. So the apostles came to their final conclusion, but it seems to me that Peter kind of stood up as an authority figure and said, hey, this is the direction we got to go. And I do believe that when you look at a solid church, you're going to find that there is going to be a few things. First of all, there's going to be at least uh, one, if not multiple, leaders in the church who are humble and follow the qualifications of 1 Timothy chapter 3. Whether they're called elders or bishops or pastors, you're going to find one or more of these men who said, we're not leaders because we want to lord over the people. We're leaders because we want to lead people to Christ. And we're qualified to do so according to 1 Timothy 3. You're going to find that. Secondly, you're going to find that these leaders in their humility, I believe, are going to set themselves up with wise counsel. These leaders are not going to separate themselves from the people. They are going to surround themselves with other people who may or may not be qualified by 1 Timothy 3. That's not an issue. Who may or may not be called to the pastorate, but other people who are themselves humble and have wisdom and love God. Maybe mistakes in their past have kept them from being a pastor. Maybe they don't have a calling to be a pastor. Maybe they are qualified but no calling. Either way, I think you're going to find a healthy ministry, a healthy leadership is going to be surrounded with accountability. And that accountability will not be, in my opinion, this is an opinion, will not just be their family. I believe you're going to find a healthy church, you're going to find a pastor surrounding himself with people not related to him. My concern with the pastor surrounding himself with only family members is there's obviously going to be a, uh, some nepotism, if, if nothing else. But on top of that, uh, the deference a family member is going to give to that pastor, who is probably a father, grandfather, uncle, is not going to really give healthy counsel or true accountability. When the, the patriarch of the family holds sway over the family, then what he's looking for is a bunch of yes-men. What he's looking for is an outward look of, look, you know, I'm doing it right. I've got people that I get counsel from. Yeah, but these people can't tell you no. They're related to you. <laughs> What's going to happen? You're going to throw them out of the house? You're going to, you know, tell your son-in-law that, he, you know, your, your daughter's going to leave him? I mean, what are you going to do? And so I believe that a healthy pastor, when at all possible, a healthy position of pastor, he'll surround himself with people that have the spiritual gifts of faith, discernment, and government. He will not be afraid of these people. He will look for these people. He will not ostracize these people. He will embrace these people. He will not belittle these people from the pulpit out of some fear that they might take authority from him. He will speak highly of them at every possibility and make it clear you are working together. Because those with faith, discernment, and the gift of ruling are the exact kinds of people you want on your team of advisors in a church, in a spiritual capacity. And yet, how many pastors choose their inner circle by how much money they give, who they're related to, either him or someone else important in the church, or just how loud they are? They, they're overly loud. They say a lot, so you know what? I'm just going to 
you might say, shut him up by giving him a spot on the team. And hopefully I'll manage it by them no longer speaking loudly in the church. I'll let them speak loudly in my office now in some kind of group setting. That's not qualification to be on a team of advisors. Faith, discernment, and government. I'll tell you there's one more I would add, which is not a gift of the Spirit. It is a quality of the Spirit, and that would be humility. If the person has all three of these, has any one of these three, and does not have humility, they're not going to be on my team of advisors. I'm not interested. Because before pride comes, or after pride comes what? Yeah, destruction. And so why would I bring someone who I know biblically is going to destroy whatever is in their path? Why would I bring them onto my team? Why would I bring them into my inner circle for advice if I know they struggle with pride and I believe the Bible that I'm asking for trouble? And if you find churches with trouble, you're probably going to find pride is embedded deeply into the pastor's heart or the advisors the pastor has set himself around. I have been to churches, and I know of churches, where there are prideful Christians that go to that church. You're not going to eliminate that. But the church is doing very well. The church is very healthy. You know why? Because the prideful members have not been given leadership positions. The prideful members have not been allowed to steer the direction, the health, the vision of the church. So those prideful members, yes, they, they do bring with them destruction, but the, the impact is limited because they're not allowed to impact other people with their pride. And so let's talk about these gifts now. Faith, the first one being faith. Now I believe faith's pretty obvious But let me clarify, faith here meaning trust, the ability to place your trust in God, the ability to recognize that God's in control, that um, it's not that you just sit back and let God do whatever he wants and you just go along for the ride, but that as you are moving forward, you are moving forward following Christ, not worried where he's taking you because you are fully confident that where he's taking you is good. Not necessarily Good as in enjoyable, but good as in good for God's kingdom, good for God's glory. And I've got to tell you, whatever is good for God's kingdom and God's glory is good for me. I mean, I like it. It may require me giving up some things. A lot of things that have been good for God have not been good for my pride, which eventually is good for me, but you get it, right? I've not been good for my pocket, but, but again, eventually is good for me. And so a Christian who has faith recognizes it's not about what's good for me. It's about what's good for God, and that is good for me. So it's about what's good for God's kingdom, and that is good for me. So faith is the ability to accept the fact that it's not about you. It's about God. God is in control, and following him is the best place you can go. Now, of course, there is saving faith. The the initial placing your trust in Christ for salvation. That is not a gift of the Spirit. That is a decision of the will. Obviously, the heart needs to be affected. God loves us. God convicts us. Our heart is convicted and affected. And through the will, through the free will of man, from the conviction and love of God, God loved us before we loved him. God called us before we called him. I am not a Calvinist. I do not believe that only those who are called get saved because I believe God calls everyone. So in a sense, I guess you could say I believe that. Only those who are called get saved. But there's plenty that are called that don't get saved because God calls all to repentance. It's not God's will that any should perish, that all should come to repentance. So God calls all, God loves all, and then only some, unfortunately, respond to that calling. And unfortunately, only some respond to that love, and those who do have placed their faith in Christ. That's not a gift, that's a choice. Then, once you're saved, saving faith 
needs to grow into serving faith. If it does not grow into serving faith, your saving faith is not eliminated. You're still saved. God doesn't say, all right, if you don't serve me, you're not saved. You know what that's called? Lordship salvation. If you don't serve me, you've lost your salvation. That's, that's again, a version of lordship salvation, and it's not biblical. So there are plenty of people who have saving faith. They get saved. They place their trust in Christ. They recognize they're a sinner going to hell. They cannot save themselves, and they place their trust in Christ. But it's very hard for them to daily walk with Christ. Well, Pastor Russ, if they're saved, it wouldn't be hard for them. Well, then, what's going on in your life? Everything perfectly working out for you? I highly doubt that. It's a lie to believe that Christians can't sin. Someone's lying to you if they've told you that. It's a lie to believe Christians can't live in sin. Someone's lying to you. There are plenty of examples of Christians in the Bible who are living in sin, who were living in sin for some time. I've heard it said, well, uh, Christian, if a Christian lives in sin longer than a year, they never were saved to begin with. Where is that in Scripture? Where is your year mark? I see King David living in sin for a year. Well, okay, all right. If a Christian lives in sin for five years, they can't be saved. Again, I highly doubt that. I'll tell you this. King Saul lived in sin for at least ten years. Well, he wasn't saved. Was he not? Then how did the Holy Spirit indwell him? I don't think the Holy Spirit indwells unsaved, not that according to my knowledge of Scripture. I think King Saul was saved. And I think King Saul self-destructed. That's my personal belief. And King Saul, a good portion of his final years... Running from God, living in sin. I believe that Christians can live in sin, and I don't believe there's any hard and fast line that if they cross that line, oh, you know what, now we know they never were saved. No, we don't. Only God knows. Of course, there are people who claim to be saved and are not, obviously. Of course, there are people who uh, will prove that in some way that will be pretty obvious. Okay, you know, maybe they weren't saved. I get that, but we could still be wrong. We could assume they're not saved, and maybe, maybe they are. Really, it doesn't really affect us as long as we don't view our Christianity through their life. As long as our Christianity is, faith, is, is based in Christ, someone else's issues should only cause us sorrow and a desire to help them. It should not cause our own faith to shake. But those Christians who've accepted Christ are called to a higher level of faith now, a higher level, not that they get more saved, but that they become more humble and serve Christ in their faith. And that's the gift of faith here. Not the gift to be saved, but the gift to, as you are saved, follow Christ through your salvation, in your salvation. That is very hard for some Christians to do. We are all called to it. We're all called to walk in faith. But those who have the gift of faith, they're going to find it easier to accomplish than those who do not. You ever met someone who just, like, it's so easy for them, like anything that God asks, no problem, uproot my family to Done, God. Uh, give everything away. I have to uh, give everything away. I have to someone else. No problem, God. I didn't need it anyways. You know, give away a car, and now I only have one. Sure, it's yours, God. You can have it. Like, how do these people function like that? Right? How can they make decisions so easily that seem to impact their life so heavily? They probably have the gift of faith, and they are just without a doubt, no doubts at all in their head, able to follow Christ as long as they're convinced it's Christ. Even sometimes when they're not even sure it's Christ, they'll still do it. <laughs> Because they have to get to faith, they just trust him so implicitly. Those are the kind of people I want on my team. People who don't second-guess God. Now, the danger of these people is if they're not mature, their gift of faith can be placed on emotions rather than Christ. 
The danger is if they haven't experienced truly what it, who Christ is, their gift of faith is placed in people. Faith in people, because they easily trust. That's a gift they have. And so I find that a lot of churches with manipulative pastors, controlling pastors, you're going to find their congregation is probably full of a bunch of people with this gift. But they haven't been told how it's supposed to be used. They've been manipulated. And so their gift has been twisted to be placed on the pastor, the man of God. So in these people's minds, they are trusting God, but they've been deceived. They're actually trusting a man. And their faith is placed in that man rather than God. And with all gifts, they can all be misused and abused. And unfortunately, I find that that is often the case. So again, humility attached to these gifts, but I would also say maturity. Someone who knows the difference between God's man and God and knows the difference between their emotions and the Holy Spirit. That person who knows that with humility and has faith, man, they're the kind of person I want to follow. They're the kind of person I want alongside me as we follow Christ. And these people will protect the church body from what? From a view of, um, well, we can't do that because we don't have the money. Well, we can't do that because who's going to come to this ministry if we do? Or who's going to take over this ministry? These people protect the church from, from having a, a mindset of only logic, only reason. And if you can't show me the logic or reason behind this, we're not doing it. And the person of faith says, hey, have a little faith. Where's God in this equation? If God's in it, then why are we against it? And this person of faith can keep the church from, from holding back the blessings that God wants to bring in to the church body. Especially when this person who has this ability, this spiritual gift, is put into a high level, level of leadership. Now think about the impact they can have on the church body and help the church body move forward in difficult times. When people are lacking faith, it's okay because the leadership has faith. It's okay that the members are struggling and in doubt. That's fine. When the leadership is struggling in doubt, we're in trouble. <laughs> These people need to be in positions of leadership. And I'm not just talking pastors. The trustees, the deacons, the life group leaders, whoever else is an advisor to, to uh, the leadership team, they need to have faith. And not just saving faith, daily serving faith. Okay, the next one is discernment. And discernment, by the way, you'll find that there are, there are pages attached to this. I'm not going to go over all those pages, but I kind of break down each of these, there's three pages attached to the first one, kind of giving a little more detail of the uh, individual gifts. So you can look at those as you want. They're for you, but we're not going to go over them together. So the gift of discernment, I believe, is the ability, let me put it plainly, to see things that other people do not see. Now, that definition can be taken pretty extreme. I've known some people who said that my gift of discernment, I see, I see demons, I see angels. I see spiritual beings that other people do not see. I don't see that in Scripture. I see the opposite of it. I see in Scripture the Bible says you won't know angels when you see them. And in the sense of if they're among you, you won't see them. This person would probably claim, well, I'm not saying they're in human form. I'm saying I see, like, literally angels. I'm a little concerned. I don't see in Scripture where that is a prominent thing. I don't, I don't see the attachment of the ability to see spiritual beings to discernment. Um, I'm not saying that someone can't see that. I would, I would say it's probably something else going on than discernment, and I would want to little, dig a little deeper. Unfortunately, people like that often don't want to talk about that on the level that I want to talk about it. They want to talk about it on a 
different level. I want to get to truth, and they don't want to have that conversation. But discernment, I don't believe, is the gift to see demons and angels. I don't believe that. I do believe it's the gift to see people, often for who they really are, before someone else does. That's, I think, a practical way discernment plays out. That you saw, before anyone else, you saw that the, this family was not doing well. They come in, they smile every day. It's not about gossip. No one told you anything. You could just see deeper into their eyes. You could see deeper into the relationship, the interaction between the kids and the parents. You saw before anyone else that that, that, that child at age 18 was going to run amok and head out and never come back. You saw that. You saw that that pastor uh, was having issues and was going to, uh, those issues were going to come out, and you were a little concerned. You saw that before anyone else. You saw that the, um, the church's finances were not doing as well as the books seemed to imply. And the church business meetings, they would give you this, and you say, you know, I see that, but there, there's something off here. Like something's being hidden or changed, and you saw that. And then six months later, it comes out, yeah, you know, someone's been stealing money for the last two years, right? And you, you saw it. You kind of knew it before anyone else did. But none of those things are happening here, okay? I'm giving you examples, hopefully, of what's not going on here. All right, so you saw these things. When you, when you met someone and you had just like 10-minute conversation with them, it's not that it's a magic trick. You just are almost right away able to discern some things about them in just 10 minutes of conversation. That's discernment. It's a gift. It's a spiritual gift. The Holy Spirit is giving that to you. The Holy Spirit is allowing you to see things about people that maybe other people don't see clearly. Now, can you see how valuable that would be in leadership? Can you see how valuable it would be for a, the pastor and his leadership team to discern things about the finances before anyone else does? <laughs> right? That's important. To discern things about the other staff members or members of the, of the church itself before anyone else does. That's a valuable gift. I mean, these are all valuable, but this one definitely on a higher level of leadership. And yet, you know, a lot of pastors would be afraid of having someone like this on their team. Why? You can. So, as I said, humility and maturity. Just as faith can cause harm if your faith is in the person rather than God, discernment can cause harm if you see things and start talking about it. (laughs) Uh, Belittling people because of what you see. Or stating what should not be stated publicly but personally. Yes, can definitely cause harm. And that's why, again, maturity and humility. But why would a spiritual leader not want someone with discernment on their staff or inner circle? What reason would they have? Scott? They're trying to hide something. That's right. If you're trying to hide something, you don't want someone who's good at finding things out on your team, right? You don't hire people that have discernment if you're embezzling. You don't hire people with discernment and put them on your staff if you're sleeping around with people. You just don't do that. And there's a lot of pastors who've got a lot of stuff to hide. And they're afraid of people with discernment. They don't want them even anywhere near them. Not only are they not allowed on the team, they're almost not allowed to be in church. And I'll tell you, I've heard this so many times. Recently, I've heard this stated that um, a member, this is not our church, and you don't know this individual, so don't worry about it, but I heard recently that a member went to a pastor. This person was talking to me, and they said, you know, went to the pastor, and I said, I'm concerned about some things, and voiced the concerns, and the pastor said, how dare you question me? Then the wife of the pastor came to, it was a woman, came to that woman that very night. It was like a Bible study, Wednesday night Bible study. 
Went to her that night and said, I, in all my years, never heard of anyone questioning the pastor. It's her husband she's talking about. <laughs> Essentially, she's, she's being attacked from both sides for questioning the leadership. That's a lot more common than you might think, than you might know. That kind of leadership scares me. What are you hiding if people can't even question your choices at all? And they're attacked for doing so. Well, but he has deacons, he has trustees around him. Well, if, if, look, if, he's, if him and his wife are attacking a woman, <laughs> older woman in the church, he's not even a young woman, older, elderly woman in the church, if they're attacking her, I guarantee you those trustees and deacons are not in any way questioning the pastor. He's got them beaten into submission. So it's a pointless inner circle if these guys are just here shaking their heads yes everything, to everything he says. What's another reason why a pastor would not want those with discernment on his inner circle? Not, maybe he's not hiding something, and I think there are other reasons than just hiding something. I think that's a big one, Scott. But there's other reasons why a leader would not want other leaders with discernment. It may affect his plans. It's not that he's doing anything wrong. He's not hiding sin. But those with discernment inevitably do what? Question. They question. Why? Because if you have discernment and maturity, you're going to want to find out the facts because something doesn't sit right. Something doesn't look right. You're going to ask questions. And not all leaders, as I just stated, like asking, answering questions. And not all leaders like to be questioned. And not all leaders like the idea of their vision and their plan going a different direction than what they want. And it's not even about sin. I mean, you know, we're talking about buying a building, right? It's not like buying in that building, one is sin and one is not. So it's not even all about sin all the time. It's just the pastor, I really want this building. This is the one we're going to buy. And someone with discernment says, should we really, though? It's not a sin issue. It's not a moral issue. Is this the best decision? And the pastor says, you know, I'm done with you questioning me all the time. You're off the board. There are a lot of men, I believe, who love God, living moral lives, but still are afraid of people with discernment because it, it, in their head, it gets them off track. They're not able to move as, as fast and as far forward as they want because these people keep holding them back. <laughs> they are doing that for a reason. It's to protect you from going further and faster than God and paying the consequence. Paying the price. How many pastors have gotten their church into financial difficulty, not out of sin, out of desire to truly impact the community, a solid, good intention, but they got their church in financial trouble, and then what does the pastor do? Leaves. And just goes and finds another ministry that's not in financial trouble. <laughs> Starts over again. <laughs> People with discernment protect the church from the leadership. And that's needed. No leader is perfect, and myself included. People in the church with discernment protect the church from the church, from themselves. Protect the church from the community. He was going to come in and say, oh, you guys, you know, you'd have more people if you looked like this, if you did this, and if, if you embraced that. And People with discernment said, whoa, 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 step back. <laughs> We're not here to look like the community. We're here to win the community, <laughs> right? Someone with faith might be, yes, amen, brother. Let's do that because we love God. God will take us anywhere. Someone with faith and out, without discernment may be tricked into going certain directions because it's all about faith. Let's get that building, brother. Amen. Five million, God can provide. Amen. You need those people to show you, yes, God can provide. But you need the people with discernment to say, yeah, it's not about that God can't provide, but is there better for us? You see, when faith and discernment work together, oh, you had a beautiful team. It's a wonderful thing to behold. When faith and discernment in humility and maturity 
work together in unity. And I hate to break it to you, but not all pastors are given all gifts. <laughs> There's pastors out there who don't have the gift of faith. What? How can they be a pastor without the gift of faith? No, it doesn't mean they don't have faith in God. It just doesn't mean it comes easily to them. It comes hard to them. They'll trust God, but boy, there's a lot of anxiety that comes with that. Well, the Bible says not to be anxious. Look, no man's perfect. These men will do what has to be done, but it, they, they lose sleep over it. They'd be wise to surround themselves with people with the gift of faith because they themselves lack that gift. There are pastors who don't have the gift of discernment. Are you shocked? I'm not saying they're fools. I'm not saying they're stupid. But they've been tricked a lot of times by a lot of people, and they'll say, well, you know what? You can't really know anyone. Fair enough. You are totally right. Someone with discernment might know them better than you, though. Surround yourself with those of the gift of discernment to keep you from making continually poor choices relating to people. But I love them, and that's part of the problem. You love them so much. Love covers sins, and for you, love's covered all their sins. Like, you don't see anything wrong with them. Like, they're perfect angels, and everyone else knows they're not, especially the one with discernment. But you as a pastor who's just so full of love, you let them run amok in the church. Can you see? Pastors don't have all these gifts. 1 Timothy chapter 3 does not require them to have the gift of faith or the gift of discernment. There are other requirements, but there's a lot of men, a lot of leaders who lack these gifts. And unfortunately, out of pride or fear, not only do they lack these gifts, they don't surround themselves with people who have these gifts. And then you wonder why these churches are falling apart. Oh, man. You know, God must be closing those doors. No, he's not. The church body has decided not to use the gifts God has given them to flourish. And the church body has hired a man who doesn't see the value in these gifts and eliminates these gifts and doesn't surround himself with people with these gifts. Well, you are inevitably heading to destruction then. So many people choose a church based off of the music and the pastor. And when they choose the pastor... Their choices, how does he look? Does he in any way offend me with his, with his dress? Wears a tie or doesn't wear a tie? Uh, wears jeans or doesn't wear jeans? Because some are offended when you don't wear jeans and some are offended when you do wear jeans. Does he offend me in the way he dresses? Does he offend me in the way that he preaches? Some like the fiery screaming and yelling and jumping on the chair and like, amen, brother, and some are offended by that. And some stamp the pulpit and another move, and some say, now that's preaching. And some are like, that's offensive. I mean, the guy needs to act alive at least a little bit, right? So they're offended. So people say, am I offended by the pastor in some even, even unbiblical way? <laughs> am I offended by him, and do I like the music? That's usually the first two things people look at. If they have kids, obviously, one of the top three, if not the top, would be to have a kids program. And yet, they don't ask, is the leadership structure of this church taking the church towards Christ. Well, of course they are. The pastor's wearing jeans and they got great music. Of course they're going to Christ. Or, of course they are. The pastor's wearing a suit and they only sing hymns. Of course they are, right? So the phrase, of course they are, is defined by their preferences <laughs> because they lack knowledge of what true leadership looks like. <laughs> so they're filtering the phrase, of course they are, by what they want and what they're looking for, not by what is actually true. God forbid God ever calls any of you away from this church. But if he does, he does. And, you know, if that's how it goes, that's how it goes. Let me help you. If God ever calls you away from this church and he calls you to a new church, forget about the pastor, what he wears. Forget about the music, at least for a little bit, and ask yourself this. Is the leadership of the church taking the church towards Christ? And you evaluate that by are there, are there spiritual gifts evidenced on the leadership team in more than one person? 
is the pastor surrounding himself with people who are humble and mature who are also evidencing those gifts. If not, then there's one of two things going on. It's a small church. It's a small ministry. Um, God is using one man to hopefully bring in others and establish that. Or if it's not a small church, a small ministry, a new ministry, that man doesn't want that. And if he doesn't want that, then I'm out of there. I'm not going to stay if I was looking for a church. I'm not going to stay in a church under a man who doesn't want the spiritual gifts displayed and used to help the church on leadership levels, not just layman levels. And then we find the last one, government. And this is where it really gets uh, tricky for a lot of pastors, a lot of churches, because a lot of churches believe that the only ruler of the church is the pastor. The only one making the decisions is the pastor. He's the leader of the flock. He's the one that has the care of their souls. He's the one that God talks to. No one else hears from God about the, leader, the, the direction of the church but the pastor. No one else has care for the souls of other believers except for the pastor. Uh, no one else loves God like the pastor. Well, what Bible are you reading? Because I see in the New Testament where we are to admonish one another. We are to go to a fellow brother or sister who has caused offense, not go to the pastor, tell them and say, take care of it for me. We are to have care for each other's souls, not just to have the pastor care for our souls. We're not babies. We're not infants. And so, the pastor, you might say, is an under-shepherd. I would definitely say that. The pastor does have care for the souls of the church, but we should all do that. The pastor is a servant. We should all be servants. So you might say the pastor is the one God has given the church to show the church how we can all be pastors. Let me clarify. I don't mean in position. I don't mean you're all going to be voted in as pastors. But how every member of the church can in some way reflect the heart of a, can I use a different word? An under-shepherd. How in some way the pastor can show the church how we can all reflect the heart of Christ, the shepherd, to each other. And so God gives the church a pastor that can show you what that looks like in the form of the human condition. We have that in Christ. But for those without faith, it's hard to see what that looks like. So God says, let me give you a picture. You know God loves pictures? Did you notice that? Old Testament, God loved pictures. He would say, set up those stones. Let it be a, a visual reminder of what I did here. <laughs> Let it be a visual reminder of, of the, the crossing of Jericho. Set up those stones. The Red Sea, you know, being stones being set up on the other side. Let, let me show you. In the New Testament, God says, let me show you as a visual reminder of what Christ did on the cross through the, through the Lord's Supper. Let me show you a visual reminder of the act of salvation through the, the baptism of a new believer. God loves pictures. And I believe the pastor is just another picture. Now, the pastor is not Christ. He ought to be a picture reflecting Christ. And the goal is for that picture to inspire you to be the same. A picture reflecting Christ. I am not, I hope, the only one in this church who loves God. I am not, I hope, the only one who cares for souls of other believers. I am not, I hope, the only one God talks to. Therefore, I don't need to be only one, the only one calling the shots in this church. Now, there can't be chaos. There can't be everyone has an equal vote, and unless everyone says, yes, we don't do anything, because then you don't do anything. 
But that is why our church has, you might say, set up the leadership here where there is one person who has the authority to make the day-to-day decisions and have been entrusted with that. But there are people who have been voted in to, to uh, keep that individual accountable, to ensure the direction that the person that me, I am going, is the way the church should go. And then all of the members in our business meeting this coming Wednesday and every quarter have the option to see all the major decisions that have been made and the major decisions we're going to make to vote on those and to see all the major financial choices we made and to vote on any new ones we have to. So all the churches involved as much as they want to be. And then the church has voted in multiple people who are more involved on a regular basis. And then the church has voted in the pastoral staff who are overly involved on a daily basis. So you have tiers of leadership, which is what I see in the Old Testament with Moses, which was the wisdom given to him. And I believe what I see in the New Testament in the book of Acts, the apostles and the elders and the pastors, I see tiers of leadership. And that's good. But there cannot only be one tier and everyone else is on the bottom. (laughs) I believe the best form of ruling is when you've got tiers of rulers, not leaders of followers. But can I clarify for you? A healthy church has leaders of leaders, leaders of leaders in training, and then leaders of followers. Because there will always be people who never want to lead. That's fine. But if there are people who want to lead, there should be some leaders training them to be leaders. And then a pastor, a leader in a church, should never be afraid of other leaders. They should, they should thrive under a ministry where they're surrounded with leaders, not be scared of that. So this gift of governments and rulings is not only given to the pastor. It's given to other people in the church who have the ability to make hard decisions, the right kind of decisions at the right time for the health of the church. And the pastor should have tiers of leaders, in my opinion, in churches that help him do that. And that is when the church will be in his safest healthiest place, going in a direction that truly is going to end with God. Let's pray.